In the summer of 2009, my dad, knowing that his time was drawing to an end, called together the men of the church. I think that he knew as his days grew shorter that eternity was growing closer and the things of this earth were growing strangely dim to him. And so he was impacted with the importance to live his last few moments for the glory of God. With that in mind, he called together the men of the church and he had some things on his heart that he wanted to confess to the men of the church. He wanted them to know where he had fallen short in several areas and have them pray with him unto the Lord. Well, as he began to confess several sins, there was a man in the church that tried to stop him. And he began to minimize my dad's need to confess unto the brethren. And he began to say, oh, well, everybody goes through difficult times and it's not that big of a deal. And he tried to minimize those things. My dad, very wisely, did not allow him to continue. But he said, no, this is important. And I need to confess these things unto you. You know, it is so important for us when other people come to us and are expressing feelings of guilt or confessing guilt not to minimize what they're feeling and what they're going through. We must not minimize that. And yes, it is true that we may have somebody come and maybe there are blowing something out of proportion. And maybe they're not truly guilty. But the fact of the matter is, a feeling of guilt is like physical pain. It's an indication that there's something broken and it needs to be fixed. And when we minimize, when people come to us expressing that guilt, basically we just prove to them that we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're talking about. So this evening, as we continue with our theme of walk worthy of the calling with which we are called, we have looked at our identity in Christ. That there is no guilt in life for those who are in Christ Jesus in the sense that we have been redeemed. We are holy and blameless in God's sight in our position because the righteousness of Christ is ours. But do we ever sin and do we need to confess those sins unto God? Yes, we still sin, don't we? We're not perfect. And so it's important for us to know how to deal with practical guilt as it arises in our lives. So, we'll turn to that consideration today. I've got a little chart up here in the front. Most of you are not going to be able to read all the fine print of that, but hopefully it will give a little bit of idea, and I'll explain as we go. I just wanted you to see a little bit of how this flows down together when we talk about this subject. First of all, let's consider what is guilt. Well, if you want to look at guilt, just strictly speaking, dictionary-type definition, guilt is liability or culpability to punishment for wrongdoing. To put it simply, if you're guilty, it means you've done wrong and you can be justly punished for doing wrong. You've done wrong and you can be justly punished for that wrongdoing. There are a couple of things that I'm bringing to the table here. I'm not going to defend these this evening. It's what we call presupposition, something that I'm presupposing. I'm saying this is a fact right from the very start, and everything I'm going to say tonight flows from these things. So I'm not going to spend much time on these. I'm just going to read through them. First of all, all people are born guilty. They are born liable to punishment by God himself. It says in the Psalms, 
There in Psalm 51, David said, In sin my mother conceived me. It says also in Psalm 58 that the wicked go astray from the womb speaking lies. We are all born into sin. We are born guilty even inheriting the guilt of Adam's sin. It speaks of that in Romans chapter 5. Well, all people are born guilty and they're born guilty against God. God is the offended party. And we are liable to punishment from God for our wrongdoing. Also, all sin then ultimately is against God. We may sin also against another individual. But who is the lawgiver? Who is the one who is commanded? Who is the one who defines what is right and wrong and those things even flow from his character? Is God himself, is it not? Therefore, God is always an offended party when we sin. Another point, only the offended party can forgive sin. Only the offended party can forgive sin. If my son sins against my wife, I cannot forgive my son and that be taken care of. He must ask forgiveness of my wife because she is the offended party. We can't go to another human being and that human being forgive us for our sin against God. Only God can forgive sin. He can only, he only can forgive the sin that is against him. Also, I'm presupposing this evening that forgiveness for sin against God is available through Christ alone. In Christ alone is forgiveness for sin. Because He is the only sinless one who took on our flesh so that He was a substitute both God and man so He could represent both parties the offended God and the offensive man. And He is the one who reconciles us unto God. So forgiveness for sin against God is available through Christ alone, no other And then those who are redeemed by Christ will be forgiven by God ultimately for every sin they have ever committed or that they ever will commit. There is not one sin that God will ever hold against any of His children. He has removed them all as far as from east is to west. But, we do need to realize, and as we talk about walking worthy, that unconfessed sin can lead to the chastening and scourging of our Heavenly Father who loves us enough to discipline us, to track us down, and sometimes to tan our hides very thoroughly. So, with those things in mind, let's consider the subject of guilt, practically speaking, as it comes about in our lives and how we are to handle it, and how to help other people consider this subject. The chart that we have there is a flow chart. We have guilt at the top. And then, shooting off to the left there, we see the headings true guilt and then false guilt, and false guilt is in quotations. Because you're either guilty or you're not guilty, right? But what I mean by false guilt is somebody who feels guilty but they're not really guilty. It's a false positive. Okay? They feel guilty, but they're not really guilty. So we're going to talk about how do we handle true guilt in a biblical way, and how do we handle if we feel guilty, but we're not really guilty? What do we do then? So first of all, let's consider the true guilt. We're shooting off to the far left. If someone won't acknowledge their guilt before God, then it's going to have to be proven to them. If you're trying to help someone, and maybe you've been in that situation before, where you have a a friend or a family member, and you know that they're guilty, but they won't admit it. So what do you have to do? You have to pile on the guilt. You have to open the Word of God to them and show them from the Word that they have offended God's holy and righteous standard. And ultimately, then, it's God who works in the hearts to convict people of their sins. But until they come to the point of acknowledging that they are guilty, you can't do anything for them. 
that's the point where it stops. I had a conversation with someone on the phone here recently. And I had, I had to stop them in the middle of a sinful attack of worry. And I had to prove their guilt to them. And I had, it took me about 20 minutes. But by God's grace, He opened their heart to understand that they were guilty. But I had to show them from the Word of God. And I had to walk them through step by step. Okay, does Jesus Christ say, don't worry about tomorrow, for the things of tomorrow will take care of themselves? Yes. Okay, he does. Are you worrying about tomorrow by doing this, this, and this? And is that something that is outside of your control? You don't even have knowledge about that, and you are worrying about that in a sinful way. Well, but, da 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 no, stop. <laughs> And at least the point I said, until you acknowledge your guilt, I can't help you. I can't do a thing for you here. And finally, by God's grace, this person said, okay, I'm guilty. Well then, what needs to be done from that point on? First of all, there has to be that acknowledgement. That's the first step. But then there has to be confession. Look over at Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Those who cover, who try and hide their sins, they try and slam the door on the skeletons in the closets, they will not prosper. But those who confess and then forsake those sins will find mercy. So there has to be confession of sin. Now, who do we know from Scripture is always an offended person whenever sin is committed? Who is it? It's God. So this process of confessing sin, it always has to go vertical, doesn't it? It always has to go vertical. Look over Psalm 51, verse 4. Here we see a confession of sin by David himself. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. He confessed his sin unto God. This was a sin with Bathsheba, and it was a sin against Uriah, the sin of murder and adultery. But he is confessing that to God and saying, You are the ultimate offended party. I am confessing this sin unto you. But, you know what? We may also need to confess on the horizontal level, right? If we have offended another person, it's not just enough to confess it to God and say, okay, that's taken care of, but there is a need to go to the appropriate persons, the offended persons, and to confess sin unto them. Now, we could probably make a little bit of a distinction here if you have just a little flash of an angry thought against someone and you don't actually act out on that and act out against that person, confess that unto God. At that point, it's between you and God. It hasn't actually come between you and the other person. You know, if we were to go around confessing every little thought that we had against everybody, <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be doing that all the time, wouldn't we? We'd be going up to somebody and saying, hey, you know, I, I, I've got to admit that you know, I, I got a little jealous of you when I saw your car, and, you know, I confess that. I apologize for that. Or, hey, you know, when you looked at that, looked at me that way, I got a little bit annoyed, you know. And, you know, if we're confessing our sins all the time, we would just be going to people left and right, and we would probably end up causing more trouble than good. So if it doesn't actually 
we've reached the point where we've actually acted out against somebody and actually offended them, that is still on the vertical level, I believe, between us and God. And we can confess those sins unto God. But that takes a little bit of wisdom to know when we have crossed over that line. But there's a need to confess to appropriate people. Look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 23. Jesus has just finished speaking about that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment and several other things there. And he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, you shall not by any means come out till you have paid the uttermost farthing. But notice this, what Jesus says, and notice here, and we'll talk a little about this context, just how much emphasis the Son of God places on going to someone that you have truly sinned against and confessing your faults unto them and seeking reconciliation. What does he say here? If you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has ought against you. Now, that's a picture that's a little foreign to us today. We don't have altars where we drag in goats and we drag in lambs. There's a reason for that, right? Jesus Christ, our final sacrifice... So we're not, we're not dragging goats into our churches and sacrificing them on an altar. So we've got we to gotta go back 2,000 years in the culture to try and wrap our minds around this scenario. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, if you get up to the altar and remember that somebody has something against you, leave your gift there. Now, the altar would have been in the temple complex at the time of Christ. And you know what? It wasn't like hopping in your car and going to Walmart to take a journey to the temple. Some people would travel for days to get to the temple. And then when they got there, it's not that you could go through the express checkout line. They had priests there who would do your sacrifice for you, but sometimes you had to go and if you hadn't dragged your goat or your sheep or whatever it was with you the whole way, you would purchase that animal while you're there. So you've got to be in line and you've got to purchase it. Then you have to wait your turn. And there could be hundreds of people in a day waiting in line to go and make their sacrifice at the altar. And so Jesus says that if you're in a situation, you've come all that way, you've waited all that time, and you get up to the altar, it is such a serious deal to seek reconciliation with somebody that you don't just say, well, I've just spent three days getting all this done. I'm going to go ahead and make the sacrifice and then I can go back home and reconcile. He says, leave your gift at the altar and go and reconcile. He's saying, you've got to make yourself right with your brother before you continue your act of spiritual worship here toward God. You see how important Jesus considered confessing sin and seeking reconciliation. I mean, so for us today, if you're getting ready and you're on your way to church and you remember that you have offended someone, then don't say, well, I'm going to go and I'm going to worship God first and then I'm going to go make things right. Jesus is saying here, you go and if you can get a hold of them, you seek to make that right. That's how important he considers this. Extremely important. So we're to confess our sins to God always and also to appropriate people. Now, what might be some attitudes that we would have that would kind of throw up a roadblock to us wanting to do that? What are some things that we would throw up in our lives that would be wrong attitudes? Maybe you guys can help me out with that. 
Have you ever known that you sinned against, you had sinned against someone, but you had an attitude in your life that was keeping you, and it was because of your sin. It's not that this attitude was a was a thing with a Tommy gun or something standing there saying, "Don't go, stay back." No, help me out here, guys. Pride. Pride. Oh, that's a big one. Not wanting to humble ourselves because of our pride. Can you think of anything else? I'm sorry? They deserved it. Okay. Yeah, you might say, well, they, they deserved it. They deserved it. So there you're not considering the nature of sin and that it is sin. And whether they deserve to be sinned against or not, the fact of the matter is it's sin and you violated the law of God. And so you must go and you must confess that unto them. We, I'm going to talk about this with the, the subject of contentment. There's a sense of justice that we all have which is right. And there's a true sense in which we deserve for people to treat us justly. But there's also a sense in which we deserve the worst that anybody could hand out to us. If God chose to use someone as an instrument of judgment against us like he did against his nation Israel when they sinned against him, would he be unjust in doing so? No. Okay, so there are a couple things. Can you think of anything anything else? Resentment? Okay. You, you have a, a strong resentment against the person and so you're not willing to go to them? There you go. Well, it's just not that big a deal. It's just really not that big a deal anymore. Maybe, maybe some time has passed. And you're saying, well, it's just not that big a deal. But if it is a big deal, and if it's something that is throwing up a barrier to reconciliation, and you have truly sinned against this person, you better be going to him and making this right to the best of your ability. Because they may not respond righteously toward you. You're not guaranteed of that. Well, those, those are all good things. What about, what about fear, too? Maybe you fear that they won't forgive you. And so you're afraid of that. Maybe, maybe you're fearing the shame that might come. And that would tie in with the idea of pride. But maybe you've got to go public with a confession of sin and wrongdoing against somebody. And, you know... It's going to hurt a little bit. That would tie in with the pride. Oh, maybe, maybe you don't want to hurt someone. In the sense of, you have sinned against them. They don't know yet that you have sinned against them. And maybe, maybe you're saying in your mind, well, you know what, I, maybe I can just not tell them and I can get away with not telling them because I don't really want to hurt them. But if it is something that is an egregious fault and a severe sin, then you are going to need to take that before them and trust the Lord with the results. Jesus says to go to that person. Okay, so we must acknowledge, we must confess, we must then make restitution if restitution is needed. We have a, a good example of that, don't we? In that wee little man that climbed up in the tree, Zacchaeus was his name, Luke chapter 19. Principle of making restitution, which is throughout the law in Scripture, and is a just principle. And should be employed more often today, in my opinion, in the legal system. But let's look at Zacchaeus and see his example here. Luke 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Four times over again. And what did Jesus say? This day salvation has come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying here that Zacchaeus is saved because he's doing these good works of giving to the poor and making restitution. He's saved for believing in Christ and wanting Christ to come and dine with him and having faith in Christ. But this is evidence of the change of his heart because he had been a greedy money grubber and now he is willing to give and to restore. So there should be restitution. Okay, but is it, is it enough? You've done wrong. Is it enough to go through all these steps and then just turn around and do it, oh, the same thing over again? And over again? And over again? And over again in the same day maybe even? No, what has to take place? We need to change, right? And we need to work on changing. What did I do wrong? Why did I do that? What were, what were the sinful desires of my heart? And then apply the scriptures to those so that we can truly change. We need to change in our thinking. Look at Romans chapter 6 verse 11. We need to change in our thinking. Romans 6.11 Likewise, reckon or consider also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have to have a mindset that we are in Christ Jesus and that our old self and our old ways we're crucified with Christ, that we are a new creature in Christ, we're not who we were, but remember, we talked about the fact, God doesn't erase the hard drive, right? So what do we have to do though? We have to consider ourselves dead unto sin. We have to realize who we are in Christ Jesus. We are alive in Christ Jesus. Alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we need to start thinking like that. We need to start thinking like true, born again, united with Christ Christians. So the change has to start in our thinking and work its way from the inside out. But then also we must change our actions. Remember our passage in Ephesians 4, starting with 22, where we're talking about putting off the old man and putting on the new? We put off the old man in our thinking, and then we do that in our actions outwardly. And then... After we've gone through that process, then there's that fifth step. And that's where we accept forgiveness. We accept forgiveness. We accept forgiveness from God. And that ties in with questions that we had about guilt and can you be overburdened with your guilt to the point of sin and your guilt yes you can if you refuse to accept forgiveness from God but also accepting forgiveness if the person that you have offended forgives you I mean what if you went through all this whole process and then they said I forgive you and you say okay now the deal's off I don't accept that that wouldn't be righteous would it no we're to accept forgiveness do you guys know what Forgiveness means? What does it mean to forgive? You know, there are a couple words in the original languages which kind of help with that a little bit. There's a word in the Greek language and it means to release. To release someone. So, if you are forgiven, that means you are released. It means they have some hold over you. You have done something against them and they have some power over you. And to forgive means to release them. There's also a word in the Hebrew, and it's the word nasa. It's transliterated N-A-S-A. What does that uh, What does that sound like? Nasa. You know what nasa means? It means to lift up or to lift off. So that has the idea of a burden. Someone has a burden upon them and if you forgive them, you are lifting that burden off of them. So when God forgives us, He is lifting that burden off of us. 
That burden of guilt. Remember Pilgrim's progress and he had the burden on his back. And there's the cross. The burden is lifted off. Forgiveness means then that we don't hold that thing against them any longer. We lift that burden off of them. If we truly have forgiven somebody, we are not holding that sin against them. Now, I want to qualify this. There may be instances where we will still still see that they go behind bars. It may be necessary for the protection of others that someone goes behind bars. But if we have truly forgiven them, we are not wanting them to be condemned by God and that burden of sin to be upon them for all eternity. And if we have truly forgiven them, we also, in a sense, are making a pledge to them that we are not going to bring that up in a negative, harmful way. Now, if they need to be put behind bars or some restitution needs to be made, that's not a negative, harmful way. That's not seeking vengeance if our motivation is right. But it's seeking the protection of others, for instance. But we are releasing them to God. And we're making a pledge not to bring that up in a harmful way either to God, okay, if if you've truly forgiven or somebody truly forgives you, they're not constantly going to be bringing that sin up to God and saying, God, look what they did to me. I remember what they did to me. And every time you see them again, you're reminded of what they did against you. And you're constantly bringing that up to God. Nor are you bringing it up in a negative and a harmful and a hurtful way to others. Do you want to know if you've truly forgiven or if somebody's truly forgiven you? Are you going behind people's back or are they going behind your back? Even though they've said they've forgiven or you've said you've forgiven, but yet you're still going to people and saying, boy, they did that to me a while back and boy, that was painful and look what they did and constantly bringing that up. What about bringing it up to yourself? We're also making a pledge not to constantly bring it up in our own minds, to bring it up to ourselves in a negative, hurtful way against them. We can know that we are truly forgiving them and that we have lifted off that burden and we have released them if we're not constantly in our own minds bringing that up against them again and accusing them again of it over and over again in our minds. While we're considering that, when should we forgive? Do we have a responsibility to forgive everyone that sins against us? Or are there certain things that they've got to do and they've got to do their part before I'm going to forgive them. Now, just to be real straightforward, there are some pretty good theologians that will be on both sides of this issue. Okay? Because there are two passages of Scripture that have to be considered in their context and they have to be reconciled together. Uh, we're going to look at those briefly, but I do believe, based on Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and then coupling that with Luke 17, 4, but Mark 11, 25, first of all, that we are required to forgive someone even if they do not come to us and seek forgiveness. And if we have sinned against them, they also are required to forgive us. Now, if we don't go to seek forgiveness, we're in violation of of the commandments of Christ himself. So we're not righteous. But we do have a command to forgive. Look at Mark 11, verse 25. When you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What's the scenario of that passage of Scripture? 
the person you're standing, let's say it's you, you're praying unto God, and you realize someone has sinned against you, God is saying, you must forgive them. This doesn't say anything about them coming to you, does it? This is between you and God right now. And it's saying, forgive. It's saying, release them. It's saying, lift off that burden and confess that. Now, it's not saying, then put it behind you to the point of you're not going to go and you're not going to talk to them and seek reconciliation if reconciliation is necessary. Look over at Luke chapter 17 now. We have to consider both of these together. Luke chapter 17, verse 4 is what we'll focus on, but let's start with verse 1. Then he said unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. Talk about the sovereignty of God and his knowledge of all things, but then responsibility. Offenses are going to come, it's going to happen, but woe unto the one that gives the offense. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother trespasses against you, if he sins against you, rebuke him. And that word in the Greek language there indicates a mild rebuke. That's not the word for rebuke which would indicate a harsh strong rebuke. This is a mild rebuke. And it's a rebuke that could even be one that's maintaining a little bit of openness that perhaps they didn't actually fully sin against me. If you go in with your guns loaded for bear because you think somebody has done something against you and that's always your attitude going in, you're going to shoot down some innocent people. Have you all ever had that happen? Or you thought somebody sinned against you and you went into everything ready to make an accusation and you didn't go in and ask questions first and then you had to stop in the middle of it and your face is red and you're apologizing and you're the one now that has to ask forgiveness because you've just falsely accused somebody? I've done that. (laughs) So we go and we issue a rebuke. It's a mild rebuke. Though, hey... You know, it looks like you've done this against me. Is that right? What's happened here? Tell me about it. And they say, well, yes, I did. And you say, well, you shouldn't have done that. You know, that was wrong. And then what does it say? And if he trespasses, or it says, if he trespasses against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, you forgive him. And if he trespasses against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turns again to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. So, there's the scenario in Mark. You're standing and it's just between you and God, and you realize somebody has sinned against you, and you forgive them on the spot. You have an attitude of forgiveness, a heart of forgiveness. Then, if the person comes to you, or if you go and you rebuke them, you realize they've sinned, they come to you, and then confess that, then you are making that public to them. I forgive you for this sin. I release you from this burden of guilt against me. And then you say, but now you're going to have to redevelop my trust and I'm not going to forgive you if you do it against me again. Is that right? What does it say there? If they turn around and do it seven times against you in the same day, what's the responsibility? It's to forgive over and over and over again. You don't wait for them to redevelop trust in that respect. Now, you may wait for them to redevelop trust before you hand them your car keys again. That doesn't mean you haven't forgiven them. It just means you're not stupid. (laughs) Because maybe they're not trustworthy and maybe it's the best thing for them that you don't give them the temptation (laughs) to uh, to be irresponsible again. Right? So wisdom might dictate that. But that but you are not holding that sin against them. You are not vengeful toward them. 
You have released them unto God. You have expressed repentance toward them, or expressed forgiveness toward them, because they've come and repented. And therefore, you're not going to bring it up. Okay. If you refuse to do any of those things in that process there, those things that are necessary, if the restoration is necessary, and refusing to change, and refusing to accept forgiveness even, well then, you have further guilt. You're guilty now of not doing what God commanded you to do in that cycle of forgiveness. And so you're going to have to go through it again. And if you continue to fail in the commandments of God, you see, see on those chart, those black things, those are supposed to be like downward spiraling, spiraling tornadoes. You see, can you read some of those things down at the bottom? Depression, fear, violence. Those are scriptural manifestations of people that refuse to deal with guilt in a righteous way. And it keeps going down, and it keeps going down, and it keeps going down. And maybe you've been in a situation like that, or you know someone that has. They're guilty, but they refused to repent and do what's necessary. And then maybe they then begin to feel more guilty because they know that they're supposed to do this, but they don't. And then they're guilty for not repenting again, and then they feel more guilty, and that makes them less likely to want to do it because now they start feeling really bad and they just keep going down and down and down until they're so depressed they can barely get out of bed. You know, there are people all over this world right now who are refusing to handle their guilt in a biblical way, and they've been labeled with clinical depression, and they're so depressed that they, some of them aren't even leaving their houses. They won't even go out of their house because they're so depressed because they refuse to do what God has commanded them to do and it keeps dragging them down and down uh, our brother Tim read Psalm 32 this morning and this afternoon I forgot to mention to him that I was going to do a different subject for the morning and the psalmist says there when I was silent God your hand was heavy upon me he says my vitality was dried up those can be the effects of guilt. And there's much depression out there that is a result of guilt because people aren't truly confessing their sins unto God the way that they should. Okay. Then the other side of this. What if somebody has this false positive? It's a feeling of guilt, but they're not really guilty. Can someone feel guilty and not be guilty? Can someone be guilty and not feel guilty? Should we live by our feelings? <laughs> no, because our feelings can be wrong, right? What should we live by? We should live by truth. The truth of the Word of God in all things that it deals with. Now, what if somebody feels guilty and they haven't really committed, they haven't really broken a commandment of God, but they think that they have? Are they guilty in any way? I think that they are. What have they done? They've gone against their conscience, haven't they? They've gone against their conscience. You know, there could be situations like that. What if somebody believes that they've offended someone else? They have No, let me put it this way. Here's a, here's a good illustration. I'm going to borrow this from somebody. But uh, this one really happened. There was a young lady that came in for counseling. And she was just in the depths of guilt. She had spiraled down into depression because of guilt. You know what she felt guilty about? She felt guilty about walking down the center aisle of the mall rather than going in the back entryway and going in the back door into the individual stores. You know why she felt guilty? Because she had a pastor that told her that it was a sin against God to walk down the middle aisle of the mall, but if you went in the back door, 
that was okay. Because in the middle aisle, you were going to come in contact with sinful advertising, but you could pick a store out and go in the back door and you may not contact that advertising. Now, does he have really solid scriptural grounds for that commandment, or is he teaching as a commandment the doctrines of men? (laughs) Yeah, so... What did she do though? She believed that that was wrong and she went down the middle aisle of that mall and her conscience was screaming at her. And she spiraled into depression because she believed she had violated God's law. Well, what should be done there? First of all, it should be pointed out to her that she did not violate the law of God. (laughs) That she had been misled. But then you don't say, oh, okay, well, now that's all over. You know, that was a mistake, so don't worry about it. Say, but you shouldn't have gone against your conscience. Is there scriptural evidence for that? Look at Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. In this whole chapter, it's speaking about issues that could go both ways. For one person, they can eat certain things and it's not a problem, it's not a sin. For other people, because it would violate their consciences, they are not to do it. It also speaks about days here. It says for one person, they can observe the day. For another person, they can not observe it and they can both do it unto the Lord. But what does it say when we go down to verse 23, but he that doubts is damned or condemned. It's not damned in the sense of eternal damnation, but it means they're guilty. They're condemned if they eat because he eateth not of faith or not in faith. For whatever is not of faith is sin. So what's the general principle that's given there? If it's an issue of something that is neither here nor there, and if you can be clear in your conscience, it's something that is acceptable and you can do, but you believe that it's wrong in your conscience and you don't have faith to do it in faith, and you violate your conscience, you have sinned. And you are guilty of sin. That's a helpful thing for us in our decision-making process. Now, obviously, if God's word says, thou shalt not do it, we don't say, oh, but my conscience says that I can, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. Or if God's word says, hey, it's okay for you. You know, then, on that side, though, if our conscience isn't clear, we need to go to the word and try and understand those things, but there are certain times when we just say, you know what, I'm not clear about this, So it's better for me just not to do it. It's better just not to do it. But if someone goes against their conscience like this young lady did, she was truly guilty, then you go over and you go through those steps of guilt and how to handle true guilt. What if somebody has a guilty feeling and it's not true guilt? I know of a young man, I didn't get a chance to talk with him in depth but the basic sketch of the scenario is he believes he's responsible for the death of his dad. Because he wanted to go see his father. And for some reason, and I don't know the reason specifically, so I'm just using this as an illustration, he wasn't able to go see his dad and then his dad had a heart attack and died. And this young man was consumed with guilt and saying, it's my, it's my fault that my dad dies, died. And he's even saying, God is punishing me by killing my dad. So it's more than likely in a situation like that, and there have been situations like that where it's a feeling of guilt, but it's not a true guilt. So what do we have to do with that? And let's just read through these and consider these. And then we can take a few questions. First of all, we've got to accept the truth, don't we? If we're we're not really guilty, we need to accept the truth that we're not guilty.
also then, based on the circumstances, like with this young man, there may be a need to accept God's sovereignty in the issue. That you know what? God is sovereign over life and death. And God has cho- had chosen to take that father at that time. And as long as the son didn't do something negligent and sinful that directly led to the death of his father, the son wasn't responsible for that. And therefore not guilty. So there could be a need to accept God's sovereignty. Did Job do that well in the beginning? Remember when he lost everything? And he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't sin against God. He acknowledges God's sovereignty even in his grief. But then also there's a need for us to acknowledge God's goodness. It's not just enough to acknowledge that God is sovereign, but we should acknowledge that God is good and that the Lord of all the universe does do all things justly. Then there may be a need to trust God in this situation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. And then there's a need to rest in Christ. All you who are weary and heavy laden, go unto Christ Jesus. Rest in Him. Now, if somebody refuses to do those things, then they've got some true guilt they're going to have to deal with. And then they've got to go through that process again of truly confessing sin this time. Because, for instance, if they refuse to believe that God is good, have they sinned against God? They attribute evil unto the creator of the universe. God wants us to have truth in our inward parts and everything that he does. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are judgment. God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he in all his, his ways. Refusing to do these things then result in guilt. Let's consider these three things at the bottom of the chart and then if you have any questions on this, let's talk about them. We've already seen that guilt and not handling guilt properly can lead to depression, haven't we? From Psalm 32. He's describing their symptoms of depression. His vitality is zapped. He's drained. That's a symptom of depression. He mentions even physical pain in his body. It's like his bones are roaring within him, he says. But then he confesses his sin. And then he is able to close out that psalm with, Rejoice in the Lord, all you righteous and shout for joy, you upright in heart. So there is joy in being able to follow the Word of God and handling guilt properly. It is a freeing and a joyful thing to be obedient to God. Well, what about fear? What does it say in Proverbs 28, verse 1? It says there that the wicked flees when no one is chasing them. <laughs> The wicked flees, even though there's nobody around that's chasing them. That's a fearful response, isn't it? The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Someone who is refusing to confess guilt properly is a wicked person. And so one response of that can be that they are fearful and they are jumpy. And they flee when no one is truly chasing them. You know, the guilty guilty crook who any time a car goes by thinks it's the cops coming to get them. And so they duck and they hide. Maybe we've even had times where we have been guilty and we have jumped and hidden and were fearful because we feared that someone was going to find out our sin. Humbling ourselves, confessing that unto God, confessing it to the appropriate people, that's the only way 
that we can righteously have peace and joy in our hearts and lives. If we try and suppress it and cover it up, we put ourselves under the disfavor of God and if we're His child, we're subject to His fatherly discipline and His hand may be heavy upon us. Then finally, their violence. Genesis chapter 4. Cain, he brought an offering that was not acceptable unto the Lord. Abel brought an offering that was acceptable unto the Lord. Cain, rather than handling that righteously, let it wrangle, and in anger he turned and he slew his brother. There are people that are behaving violently, fearfully, and who are depressed. And it's because they're not handling guilt properly. But for those who truly turn to Christ and truly follow the pattern given in the Word and confess their sin unto God and confess it to the appropriate people and make reconciliation, there is a peace and a joy that comes through obedience to Christ. And it may hurt at the time to humble ourselves. And it may be messy for a while. But ultimately, we can sleep knowing that God is smiling upon us. And that we are in His favor. Okay, let's take a a couple minutes. Anybody have any questions about this subject? Or maybe you thought of some questions about some of the other things that we've looked at. Yes. Um, when you talk about uh, confessing to God and also to the appropriate people, what about whenever you sin, but not necessarily against a person, hmm. such as um, you know, internal sin, things like that? How does the does, how does the horizontal confession apply there? Right, right. There could very well reach a point where because of the nature of the sin and the level of the sin, that it's something that needs to be confessed. For instance, if it's a lust issue and it's a spouse who has fallen into a pattern of sinful lust, that will need to be confessed to their spouse because the spouse is an offended party in that sense and, and that type of sin can take hold and it reaches a point where it affects people outwardly and it affects the relationship between the spouse. So really in my estimation and as I have examined the scriptures regarding this subject, uh, there, there are a lot of judgment calls that come in and a lot of wisdom issues that come to bear with those sins that are in the mind that may not have really borne much fruit yet against someone else outwardly. Uh, So it would depend, it would probably depend on what the sin is, the nature of the sin, and obviously it must be confessed unto God, but uh, how how much damage has it done outwardly to someone else, and when does it cross over into a need to confess uh, in my estimation, there's a lot of wisdom there. I'd be very happy for any insight from uh, our pastors here on that one.
Anything else then? Yes? Uh, at what point is like a good, like, I think it was yesterday on idols, at what point is it kind of a good thing become an idol? Right, right. Well, we know that if we love something or want something so much that we will sin to get that thing or we will sin if we can't have it, that our desire for that thing is way too strong. Because then we're saying, I want it more than I want to be pleasing to God and obedient to God. And God has told me not to sin against Him. So, you know, if it's if it is something if it's something like running, and it reaches the point where I'm willing to lie to someone to see that I have the time to go out and to run, because let's say it's a parent, and I know I know that they've got something they want me to do, and they're not going to let me go outside right now and run. So I lie to them and say, I'm going to go back in my room and I'm going to study or do whatever. And then I climb out the window and go for my run. <laughs> then that desire at the time to go running is a sinful desire that has gotten so strong that you're willing to sin against God and even sin against an authority, a parent, to do that. And so you can be certain at that point that you need to uh, confess that and to uh, suppress that desire for that thing, and if it proves to be some, if something like running proved to be something that it was so strong a temptation for you that you are constantly finding yourself falling into sin regarding it, then it would reach a point where you would need to say, just like the eye, I'm plucking that out and I'm casting it from me. I'm not going to continue it anymore because I love God so much and the Lord Jesus Christ who died for me that I'm not going to put anything in the way that is going to overly tempt me towards sinfulness. Sure, we, we can't remove every temptation from us around the world. We, we couldn't even do that by going and holding up uh, in a monastery or climbing up on a mountain because we'd still have our own thoughts to tempt us. But there may be times like in Fireproof where he took the baseball bat and set the computer on the trampoline and smashed it to pieces there might be times where we need to get rid of a computer if it's going to be too much of a temptation. Um, some of you may remember Brother Don Johnson talking about his Arrowhead collection. And he believed that it, had been, it, be, he believed it was something that had become too consuming to him, so he, he sold it. it. It was something that he devoted a lot of time to, and in his estimation, he felt that that was becoming too much of a focus for him. But, again, like we talked about, and I think very important to clarify, it's not wrong to enjoy something like running and to have a gift to be able to do that that God has given you. As long as you are giving praise and honor and glory to God in the doing of it, then it can even be a beneficial thing and a glorious thing for the kingdom of God. Does that help? Okay. Yes? As a person matures spiritually, they become more sensitive to those kinds of issues. Hmm. And things that once did not register their conscience and did not seem, did not register on them as something that was idolatrous may grow in their perception as they develop and grow spiritually to where they do notice it. Hmm. And, and that, that is a natural progress of spiritual growth. Hmm. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That is that process as they're learning how to reckon themselves dead unto sin and and what it means to put off the old and put on the new and as God continues to work in their hearts. I seem to recall a, a story about two young boys and they were walking past the window of the preacher's house and they heard the preacher inside confessing an aggrieved, egregious, terrible, gross sin unto God. And the boy's ears perked up. What did the preacher do? And there's something to the effect of the preacher saying, Oh, how my thoughts wander when I pray. 
these boys were expecting that the preacher had cheated on his wife or something like that. But that it was a man of God who, over time, God had given him a sensitive conscience and had worked in his heart spiritually. And he was impressed with the sinfulness even of his lack of ability to focus on communion with his Lord. So, I th- thank you, Brother Larry. I think that's a very good point. Okay, guys, let's uh, have a word of prayer. It's been a good day. That was a, a fun talent share. I enjoyed watching and participating. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we do again thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and that any hope of forgiveness comes in Him. And we ask that you would work in our hearts and that you would make us sensitive towards sin. You would give us grace to have consciences that are easily pricked with truth. Consciences that are well developed so they know the truth of the Word of God and aren't pricked by things that are permissible for them, but are pricked in those areas where you forbid us or you command us to do and we fail to do what you command. Father, we need your grace in all of this. And we ask that you would continue to work in us and continue to work in this camp for the time that we have left over these next two days for your glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.